the Lord reads, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwell on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of, of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. People who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Have you ever been in a place of deep darkness? Maybe you went somewhere and you explored an underground cave or you were in a basement sometime, all the lights were out, a place where there was no light that shined. A number of years ago, before I went to work, I went into Lowe's one morning, and it was doubly dark outside. At that time of day, the sun would not have been up very much, very long. But even if it had been up, you would not have been able to see it that morning because of this really dark thunderstorm that covered the area. A lot of rain, a lot of wind, a lot of lightning, very dramatic, very dark. I run into Lowe's out of the parking lot. The streetlights are still on. And as I'm walking down an aisle inside, I think it was the electrical aisle, Suddenly, all the power goes out, which is kind of ironic to be in the electrical aisle when the electricity is no more. But the power's all out, the music stops, the AC quits, 
And it's only there, then, as I'm standing in the dark, that I realize that these big box stores are just that. They are big boxes. They have a little tiny opening in the front, a little bit of glass, and that's it. There is no other opening anywhere. And so once the power goes out, it's really, really, really dark. I pulled, I, I start there in that moment, waving my hand in front of my face, because you literally could see nothing. That's kind of a cool thing to do in the dark, but you know, it get, that gets old pretty quickly. And I think, okay, I want to get out of here. I pulled out my phone. This is a much older phone. It didn't have a flashlight on. It just had the display. I thought, I'll light my way by, my, by the display. And that darkness was so thick, it just sucked up all the light. And I couldn't see a thing. Now, I'm in one of the aisles that you want to see before you start walking because there are no reference points in the dark. I have no idea where I'm going, no idea what I'm going to run into. And what is it that I want in that moment? I, I just want light. I want light from somewhere, anywhere, some kind of light to rescue me. That's the image, the picture that you need to have in the back of your mind as you read Isaiah chapter 9. As you come across this very hope-filled verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That's a promise that they would get to see, that they would be able to walk around without stumbling, without banging into things, without hurting themselves. It's a great picture, very hope-filled picture, but it assumes something that's not as hopeful. It assumes that they're already in the dark that they've actually been in the darkness for quite a while, that they are actually walking around in the darkness. And it makes you wonder, why are they doing that? I mean, being rescued from the darkness is wonderful, but why do these people need to be rescued in the first place? How did they get there in chapter 9? That's what chapter 8 helps you understand. Now, too often this time of year, we just read chapter 9 because it's warm, it's hopeful. But chapter 9 makes an assumption that the people have been living in a land of darkness, deep darkness, and you want to know, how did that happen? Let's back up a moment. God sent the prophet Isaiah to the southern kingdom of Judah, and he sent him to proclaim a word of judgment, judgment because of how people sinned. And so the first several chapters of this book lay out what God is judging them for. Chapters 1 to 8 give you that idea of what it is that they've done that he's judging for how even though they've been super religious they've been engaged in a lot of different religious activities they've been engaged in festivals and sacrifices they do a lot of praying they spread their hands out in prayer but they don't have a meaningful connection with God it's mostly just going through the motions they don't really want to have a relationship with God and so this is partly judgment for how the people have rejected God but it's also judgment for how they've been mistreating others. How in rejecting God, they've rejected what God cares about, and now they are hurting others, and particularly they're hurting other people who are not as powerful as they are. And so as you read through those first several chapters, you come across God's indictments for things like how the people have not stood up to defend the weak and the vulnerable in their society, chapter 1. How they've enjoyed a fairly high standard of living. They've had bigger and bigger houses and property in chapter 5. They've given themselves to a life of entertainment, chapter 5. How they love fancy clothes, a lot of jewelry, chapter 3. But they only have this high standard of living because they have lived on what should have gone to other people. People, chapter 3, who were less privileged than they were. 
So it's an indictment for how they've mistreated other people, how they've been unmerciful, arrogant, God says. How they've lived well because other people did not. Because they kept what really should have gone to other people. And so how in rejecting God, they've created this unjust, unmerciful society. And so God sends Isaiah to them to tell them judgment is coming. Punishment for sin. That chapter 3, he will take away their health. That chapters 3 and 5, he will make the basic necessities of life scarce. They'll have trouble finding food and water. That chapter 3, he'll take away their real leaders and he will give them rulers and officials who patently do not have the ability to lead. And they can't lead well. That chapter 3, people will oppress each other. That there will be generational strife. One generation will fight against another. And that chapter 3, he will take away their wealth. He will leave them open to attack by other nations, chapters 5 and 7. That he will do all of this to humble them in their arrogance. That he will judge them in all of these ways. Now we as moderns don't handle a God who judges really well. We don't handle a God who punishes. That's not always been the case in the church. You can read Dante's Inferno and realize that the medieval church had no problem with a God who punishes sin. That God made sense to them. They understood that God cannot overlook any moral imperfection, any sin, any deviation from who he is. Because even the tiniest movement away from him, away from his nature, away from his character, away from who he is, That deviation continued out over the course of infinity leads you infinitely away from him. And as it leads you away from him, it leads you to create a world that has nothing to do with him. A world that has to be unjust, merciless toward others. And so the tiniest deviation, no matter how small it begins, ultimately ends up with you creating a hellish world. And God will not allow that no matter how small that beginning is. It's not what he made the world for. It's not why he gave you the gift of life. It's not why he made you in his image. And so he judges every deviation from his own glory and from his own perfection. He's letting you know in Isaiah that there are times when he allows that judgment to break into this world here and now. But that's hard for us as moderns, especially in the West. We've become fairly complacent about sin. We're morally relative. We don't have a strong sense of what real goodness is like, and so we struggle with a God who judges and punishes anything that falls short of what he considers the true goodness to be. And so, especially in this time of year, we really like the hope of chapter 9. But we don't like the idea of living in a world that needs the hope of chapter 9. A world where God actively judges where he allows all of us, in some respect, to live under his current general judgment of the human race, where he allows these small tastes of his judgment out now that warns of much more later to come. We don't like that kind of God. And so we factor him, we factor his judgment out of our thinking. And so it never occurs to us to ask if he has anything to do with, say, a pandemic, with natural disasters, with social upheaval, poor leadership, generational conflict, 
all the kinds of things you find in Isaiah that he says he has some responsibility for. We factor him out of those things as if he had nothing to do with them. Robin Cook is an author. He writes medical thrillers. In his 2018 book, Pandemic, yes, the timing is really eerie. In his 2018 book, Pandemic, he traces the main character's movement from being a nominal Catholic to an agnostic to an atheist. And Cook writes that Jack, this main character, Jack had wanted to believe that there was an organizing moral force, but was unsure of what it was. Then after the catastrophe with his first family, he became an avowed atheist, fully convinced a loving God wouldn't kill children or give them neuroblastoma or autism, unquote. Do you hear how Robin Cook speaks for many of us in the modern age? Do you hear how he describes a God that we are comfortable with? How we want an organizing moral force, but a force that acts in line with our expectations of how a moral force should and should not behave. We expect this moral force to think like we think, to act like we would act, without asking if maybe our morality is not quite as high as it really needs to be. In short, we want a moral force whose morals, what? Agree with ours. A force who agrees with us. A force who would handle any difference of opinion in a way that we approve of. We don't want a personal being who is angered every single time that you and I reject what he considers to be good and holy. We don't want a personal being who is personally offended every time that we take the life he's given us and choose to use it in a way that he doesn't think is best. We don't want a God who imposes his moral order on us and who holds us accountable to it. We want to tell him what his morals should be. And we certainly don't want a God who believes that none of us are innocent then none of us should be excused from experiencing his judgment both personally and in impersonal ways as well. We don't want a God whose morality says that given what you and I and all humanity have done, given all that, that it is right, that it is moral for the entire world to live under his anger and his wrath, that he does have something to do with pandemics natural disasters, social upheavals, poor leadership, and generational conflict. Not in a simplistic one-to-one -one correlation that for each wrong thing that's been done there is one specific judgment for it, nothing like that. But that we all live under his judgment of sin, under his active displeasure for our rejection of him and his ways. That's hard for us. We struggle with that kind of God. And we're not the only ones. The people Isaiah preached to, chapters 1 to 8, also struggled. See, there are two ways of responding to this word of judgment. You can, chapter 8, verse 17, you can wait patiently for the Lord and hope in him. You can trust that everything he does and everything that he allows is good and right, even when he judges. Or, you can look for some other way of handling the hard things that God sends. And you read there in chapter 8 that the Israelites did look for other ways to handle this. So, for instance, verse 19, you can inquire of something other than God. 
Here the examples are mediums and necromancers. You can look to spiritists, other religions, some way of explaining why bad things happen to good people, some kind of karma. You look for answers in some spiritual alternative to God that you find a little bit more likable. Or, verse 21, when you experience judgment in your own life and it's uncomfortable, you blame someone else. So verse 21, when you pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, you will be enraged and you will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. You turn your face upward. Not humbly to look for help, but contemptuously. You look upward with contempt. You curse. You blame God for what you're experiencing or you blame the king, the leaders and the politicians. It's all their fault. Surely it has nothing to do with you. What, what, what do you have to do with runaway inflation? Empty grocery shelves. Supply chain problems. That, 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 that's nothing to do with you, right? That's all caused by somebody else. Certainly can't have been caused by a God who allows his judgment to break through into this world when we reject his way of living. Certainly has nothing to do with you or me, right? And so you look upward to the king, to God, to blame them. Or, verse 32, you look to the earth. You say to yourself, all these problems have purely human origins, and therefore they must have purely human solutions. And so you search for answers here, just like people have for decades in this country, centuries in other countries, millennia throughout the human history. And after all that time, with the greatest minds working on these problems throughout human history, with unlimited human power and human resources, we still come up against things over and over and over and over again that we cannot overcome. And we still refuse, as a nation, verse 17, to wait for the Lord. We refuse, verse 19, to inquire of him. And when that's our response to judgment, when we refuse, verse 20, to speak according to this word of judgment, when we refuse to speak as though God really does judge in this world, it is because we have no dawn, no light breaking in, we have no wisdom, no understanding, and so verse 22, we end up with distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and we are thrust into thick darkness. We factor God and his judgment out of the equation that's embarrassing to us as people of faith. We factor him out. The God who not only makes everything but who rules over it, we assume he has nothing to do with it and he has no light to shine on it, which then leaves us with no way to understand what's going on in our lives individually. What's going on in our society? What's going on in our country, in the world? We factor out that God has standards of what is okay and not okay. That he calls certain things sin when they miss his standards. Refuse to live by those standards and he judges. Refuse his judgment and it doesn't go away. It just means that you choose not to deal with it in a way that's helpful. You choose to live your life to walk around in darkness and gloom. The people who walked in darkness chose that darkness for themselves. That's how chapter 9, verse 2 should read. The people who walked in darkness chose that darkness for themselves, full stop. 
That's what chapter 8 says. But God doesn't stop at chapter 8. Instead, he shows his glory and he shows his grace and his undeserved kindness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Light has dawned. Don't let this go past you. It should not have. When you've chosen darkness for yourself, when you've rejected God and his standards and his right to apply his standards to this world, when you've chosen darkness for yourself, you should be stuck forever in that darkness. And here's the glory of God. You're not. After pursuing something other than God, God has chosen to pursue you. Light dawns. And when light comes, darkness is no longer dark. You can see. Light pushes darkness away. And now you can walk around safely. So when the backup generators kick on at Lowe's, Lights came back on. I walk out the aisle without running into anything that would hurt me. That's what light lets you do. You now can live, and you can live well. So then what is this light of verse 2? What breaks into spiritual darkness and lets you see spiritually? Keep reading in chapter 9. You come to verse 6, where you learn that the light is a person. And not just any person, but a very special person. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This light, this person, has so many different ways of bringing light to you. You have to have a bunch of different names just to keep up with what he's doing. He's the Wonderful Counselor. You're walking in darkness because chapter 8, verse 19, you would not inquire of God. You would not consult him. You were not interested in understanding the world by listening to his word. You rejected his counsel, and he responds by sending you the wonderful counselor. Because you won't go to him for his words, he sends his words to you. You rejected his instruction, and he sends you his instructor. What is that? It's pure grace. You, in that moment, are getting what you don't deserve. You don't deserve to hear his words since you didn't want to hear them, and he's making sure you get them anyway. You wanted to be deaf, but he sent you someone who could speak in a way that you could actually hear that would make sense to you. He's the wonderful counselor. But he's more than that. He's God himself, not a wimpy God, but a mighty God. Again, think about this. You were content to be religious. You would hope that that would pay him off, that it would be enough to get him off your back so that you could ignore him. And he does not ignore you. He comes to you when you won't go to him. But he comes how? As the everlasting father. He comes as the one who will not turn his back on his children. That could be a little scary if he came as a scary father, especially as the government rests on his shoulder. But look at what he does with his power. He rules in such a way that he's known as the Prince of Peace. Again, this has to amaze you. You've been willing to curse him because you didn't like the way your life was turning out. You didn't like his judgment. Didn't think it was necessary. Didn't think it was warranted. And he doesn't curse in return. Instead, he breaks into the world so that you get to live. Not in darkness, but in a kingdom of peace. Starts to be too good to be true, and you keep wanting to read a little bit more to know more about him. You keep going, verse 7 Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This child who's going to be born is from the line of David. David descended from the tribe of Judah. Why is that important? It takes you all the way back into Genesis 49. Jacob there is prophesying to his sons about what their future will be. And he says in verse 10 that the scepter, the ruler's staff, would belong to Judah's tribe forever. That Israel's kings would come from the tribe of Judah. God refines that prophecy many centuries later. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, he promises that King David from the tribe of Judah would have a descendant who would sit on his throne forever. That David at one point would have an eternal descendant, an eternal king. And now these prophecies are coming together in Isaiah. That this child who brings light, this mighty God, is also the king from the tribe of Judah. He's from the line of David, whose reign will never end. He's going to be both God and human, and there's going to be no one who comes after him. When he starts his reign, he will be both the present king and the last king, because he will be a forever king. Now again, remember chapter 8, you cursed your leaders and were plunged into darkness, and now you've been given a leader a human God leader, a righteous king whose government will never end. You think, well, what has ended? Darkness has ended. Judgment has ended. Now that this light has come, judgment is over for God's people. Somehow, when this king comes, his birth signals the end of God's judgment. He comes to save and rescue you from the darkness that you made for yourself. He saves you from yourself. Why does he do that? Why do you get to the chance to have all these great things? It's the end of verse 7 again. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's because of his zeal, not yours. It's not that you were so insightful that you figured out how to make light appear in the darkness. It's that God made it appear for you. It's not even that you were longing for light. It's that God longed for you not to live in darkness. It's not about your zeal to pursue God. It's about God's zeal to pursue you. It's not about you. It's about him from beginning to end. You get all the benefits of being in his kingdom. It really does matter to God how we treat others really does matter to him how we treat him. He really does judge and punish sin. The penalty for ignoring him, for ignoring his judgment, trying to work around him, refusing to repent, the penalty is that you would live forever in darkness, and our God does not want that for his people. He does not want that for you. And so he sent Jesus, the wonderful counselor, both God's son and David's descendant, to bring light into our darkness to save us from ourselves. And the way that he does that is Jesus enters into the darkness instead of us, for us. Luke tells us in chapter 23 that when Jesus hung on the cross, that around noon there was darkness over the whole land for about three hours while the sun's light failed. 
Jesus hung there under the judgment of God. He endured all the darkness, the very thick darkness that you and I deserve. He walked in judgment, being judged by God, walked in darkness so that you and I never would have to again. So we would forever see the light of God's face. And when we see his face, we will absolutely love what we see as he loves us. It's that light, that child, who we celebrate today for coming the first time. And it's that king who reigns right now that we're waiting for to come the second time. Lord Jesus, thank you for entering into this world. Thank you, Lord, for seeing us in our darkness and saying that that was just not okay with you. Thank you for coming to rescue us, to redeem us, to bring us out. Thank you, Lord, for Advent, for a time where we remember just how good you are and a time where we remember why you came. Lord, we see our need, but we see even more your love for us in our need. Lord, we are grateful people. We want to tell you a little bit about that right now as we sing together.